God is dead. God is dead. So said 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Actually, what he really said was, Gott ist tot. But uh, I won't inflict my terrible German on you. Now, what Nietzsche meant when when he declared that God is dead is the idea that no longer can humanity live as though there is a God who ought to be listened to and obeyed. And, of course, that is the common belief among atheists all around the world today, that there is no God, God is dead, so don't bother wasting your time trying to live as though he were real. And so for an atheist, uh, the idea of, of praying to God or reading God's word, the Bible... It's a complete waste of time. The, the idea of uh, obeying God's commands, it's absolutely ludicrous for the atheist. Well, the idea of giving away your money to the cause of God, well, according to the atheist, you might have all throw your money down the toilet. Well, the idea of somehow modifying your life because you believe that at the end of it there is something called heaven and hell, well, according to an atheist, that, that, that is a wasted life. But of course, as Christians, we know that there is a God. And so we know that that makes all the difference in the way that we live our lives, don't we? Or do we? I wonder. Now, of course, our current sermon series is called The Bible Storyline Project. And in it, we're looking to trace the storyline that runs all the way through the Bible from beginning to end. And we've already completed two parts now. Uh, Do do you remember the story so far? In part one, uh, we saw how in the beginning God created everything and he created it all so very, very perfect. Uh, The place where the people lived, perfect. The relationship between people and God, perfect. And the relationship between the people, well, it was perfect too. But then, in part two, last week, we saw how the creation turned against the creator. We saw the people breaking the one command that God gave them in their attempt to do away with God as their ruler. But then we also saw how this rebellion, this this sin spoiled everything. Now the the place where the people lived was cursed. Now the relationship between God and the people was spoiled. Now the relationship between the people, well, it was ruined as well. And at this point in time, the whole situation for humanity looks pretty grim. But now, today, We reach part three of the Bible's storyline and we're introduced to a fellow named Abram. Now you'll find the story of Abram in your Bibles in Genesis chapter 12. And if you don't already have a Bible open in front of you at Genesis chapter 12, can I encourage you, grab one now, turn with me. First book of the Bible, really easy to find, Genesis chapter 12. And as you look that up, let me explain that later on, Abram will change his name. He'll change it to Abraham. So if you've never heard of Abram before, then chances are you've probably heard of somebody in the Bible called 
Abraham. Now, Abram, he was originally from a city called Ur, which is in uh, modern-day Iraq, although the city itself doesn't exist anymore. And he lived about 4,000 years ago. Okay, so Abram lived around 2000 BC. And one day, God spoke to Abram, and he told him to, to leave his family of origin. He told him to head off to a land that God himself would show him. And then God went on to make... Three great promises to Abram. Firstly, he promised him that one day his descendants would become a great nation, a people who would be a blessing to others and be blessed in return. And secondly, God promised that he himself would bless this people. He would bless this great nation. Read with me. From Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Well, after making these first two of the three great promises, Abram obeys God. And at the ripe old age of 75, he leaves his family clan and he travels off to a land that God shows him. Now going with him is his wife, Sarai, who will later change her name to Sarah, as well as uh, his nephew Lot and all the animals and servants and things like that that Abram had acquired over his 75 years. Soon, Abram comes to a land called Canaan, which will later also change its name. It'll later became, become known as Israel. And when Abram gets there, God appears to him again and makes his third great promise to him. He promises that sometime in the future, Abram's descendants would be given this land of Canaan as their very own. Read with me from verse 4. Verse 4. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So there you go. God speaks, hence the speech bubble up here. God speaks to Abram and makes him three great promises. Firstly, a promise that he will bless Abram's descendants. In other words, he will care for them and protect them and, and give them an, an abundance of good things. Secondly, he promised that he would give Abram's descendants their own land. Their own land, a land that is described elsewhere in the Bible as a land that is flowing with milk and honey. 
you know, a great place of abundance. And thirdly, God promises Abram that his descendants will become a mighty nation, a people united under God, a people who would be a source of blessing to others and who would be blessed in return. So there you go. Three great promises. Three great promises which, when you think about them, are very, very significant as we consider the Bible's storyline so far. Okay, I mean, think about it. Think about it with me. Here we go. What, what did we see in part one of the Bible storyline? What did we see? Well, before sin entered the world, we saw that everything was perfect, didn't we? We saw that God was blessing his people because his relationship with them was perfect. We saw that the people had been given, a, had a God-given land, the, the garden, a place of abundance. And we saw that the people were united under God, a, a people who were bless, a blessing to one another. But of course, in part two, after Adam and Eve sinned, all that changed, didn't it? Now, God's blessing had turned to, well, judgment. Now the people were driven out of the perfect land. And now the people were no longer united under God, no longer a blessing to one another. But now, here in part three, what do we see in these promises? Well, we see all these things back again, don't we? God's blessing, the special land, a united people blessing one another. It's all back again at least in the form of, of promise. Okay, it's not a reality yet, but it's back in the form of promise. So you see, friends, that makes these verses, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 7, some of the most important verses in the entire Bible storyline. Because in them we see God's great promise to reverse the effects of sin in this world. You know, I don't think that we can read the rest of the Bible storyline and truly understand it without first having comprehended these three great promises. It means that as we go on now and read the rest of the Bible storyline, the question that we'll need to keep asking ourselves again and again and again is, how do I see God fulfilling these great promises? in what I am reading. And in fact, we get to see the very beginning of God fulfilling these promises in the rest of today's story. Because sometime after God made these promises, Abram, he gets to thinking. You see, he's now 75 plus years old. Okay, he's not a young man. Um, and his wife's no spring chicken either. The thing is, they still don't have any kids. As it stands, one of Abram's slaves is going to inherit all of his possessions. So Abram gets to thinking, and he wonders to himself, well, how on earth can God keep all these promises, these promises that, you know, are all about my offspring, my descendants, when I still don't have any kids, and I'm an old man? And so one night, God appears to Abram in a vision, and he tells him not to worry. And he takes Abram outside, and he shows him the night sky. 
and he assures him that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Turn with me now to Genesis chapter 15. We'll read from verse 1. Chapter 15 from verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So here we see God using the night sky as a a bit of an object lesson for Abram to to reassure him that, that his old age and the old age of his wife, well, that will not be an obstacle in him keeping his promises. And significantly, that was good enough for Abram. We're told that Abram believed God. And we're told that that trust was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, God was pleased that Abram was willing to take him at his word. Read with me chapter 15, verse 6. Chapter 15, verse 6. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Well, as it turns out, Abram did well to trust God, to take him at his word. Because some time later, when Abram was at the amazingly old age of 100, Sarai gave birth to a baby boy. A boy they named Isaac. Would you please turn with me now to Genesis chapter 21. Chapter 21. And as we read this, you'll notice that Abram and Sarai have now both changed their names to reflect their trust in God's promises. Abram is now called Abraham, which means uh, father of many. Okay, quite appropriate. And Sarai has now changed her name to Sarah, which means something like a princess. Uh, Quite appropriate for somebody who believes that she'll be the mother of a great nation. Read with me Genesis chapter 21 from verse 1. 21-1. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham, Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. So, wow. My goodness. You know, like we're the best that most 100-year-olds can hope for is a letter from the Queen. 
Well, here we've now got Abraham with a paintbrush in his hand, you know, painting the walls of the nursery blue. God has given him a son. It's amazing, isn't it? God spoke. Abraham was willing to take God at his word. That pleased God. And in the end, Abraham and Sarah were rewarded with great joy. Read with me these final happy verses from today's story. From uh, chapter 21, verse 6. 21, 6. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I've borne him a son in his old age. And that is part three of the Bible storyline. It's wonderful stuff, isn't it? Wonderful. Not just because of the birth of this one baby, but rather... Because in the birth of Isaac, we see the very beginnings of God fulfilling his great promises of blessing land and people. The promises through which he will reverse the terrible effects of sin in this world. That is part three of the Bible storyline. But of course here we are tonight sitting as Christians 4,000 years after the events of part three of the Bible storyline. And of course that means that as Christians we need to be asking ourselves, well what difference does Jesus now make for us as we consider part three of the Bible storyline? Because it's true, isn't it, that, that unlike Abraham, we Christians know the great climax that comes at the end of the Bible storyline, the great climax that's all about Jesus Christ. And so the question is, what difference does Jesus now make for us as we consider this part three of the Bible storyline? Well, I think that our second Bible reading tonight, that that one that came from Romans chapter 4 in the New Testament, I think that it is really helpful in answering that question for us. Because in many ways, as we read Romans chapter 4, we see that absolutely nothing has changed in terms of what God expects from his people. That we, here today, even as Christians, are simply called to be like Abraham. Called to be a people who simply trust what God says, willing to to take him at his word because that is what still pleases God. Here, read me these verses from Romans chapter 4 up on the screen. We read, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. 
but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. And so you see, as Christians, we are still called to be just like Abraham, still called to be a people who who believe God, who who take him at his word. That's what what pleased God 4,000 years ago, and it's what continues to please him today. And yet as we go on now to read just the the next little bit of Romans chapter 4, we, we see that since the time of Abraham, God has now said something else. He said something about his own son, Jesus. He's told us that Jesus is the one through whom all the effects of sin in the world will be fully and finally taken away. Look with me again at this passage from Romans chapter 4. The words it was credited to, to sorry the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness now listen to this bit for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our lord from the dead he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification so yes We are to be just like Abraham and take God at his word. But as Christians, we see that that now includes trusting what God has said about his own son, Jesus. That he is the one who saves us from our sin. So here in these verses, we get just a little hint, don't we? That that somehow Jesus is going to be crucial in God fulfilling those three great promises of blessing land and people. Now, how that will actually work out, don't worry tonight. We'll see that in future weeks. But for now, from all of this, what should be very clear to us is that trusting God, well, it ought to be at the very heart of who we are as Christians. And you know what, if I, I'm quite sure that if I was to go around here tonight and ask the Christians here tonight, hey, do you trust God? Then I'm sure the answer would be a resounding yes. And yet I can't help but sometimes wonder if we Christians, myself included, really do believe God. And I say that Because I think that often we Christians take on a kind of practical atheism. Here, let me see if I can explain what I mean. At the beginning of this talk, I mentioned how how atheists are people who don't believe that there is a God. And so for them, it's silly to live your life as though he were real. But for many of us Christians... Though we believe that God is real, the fact is that too often 
we're simply not willing to trust God. Such that, in the end, our lives don't look all that dissimilar from the lives of atheists. And so, for example, like the atheist, we too don't make time to to read God's word, the Bible. Even though God clearly tells us that his his word is, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. That's what he says. But we don't read our Bibles because we don't trust God. Or like the atheist, we don't commit our concerns and anxieties to God in prayer. Even though God clearly tells us that that is the way for us to find peace. But we don't pray. Because the fact is we don't really believe that either. Like the atheist, we don't obey God's commands. Why? Because deep down we don't really believe that his ways are the best ways for us. We don't really trust him. So we choose to go out with that non-Christian. We choose to compromise on sexual purity. We choose to to lie to, to get ourselves out of trouble somehow. Or like the atheist, we're so cautious when it comes to giving away our money to to the cause of God. Why? Because we don't really trust that God will do what he says he'll do and supply all of our needs when we're willing to seek first his kingdom. Or Or like the atheist... We don't really believe that at the end of our lives there there really is a heaven or a hell as God has told us. So our lives lack any sense of urgency to tell our friends and our family the good news about Jesus. We hear about evangelistic events here at church and we think, oh, that's nice for somebody else. Because we do not believe God. And so at the end of the day, for all intents and purposes, we live the lives of practical atheists simply because we're unprepared to be like Abraham and take God at his word. But friends, we have to realise that when we fail to trust God and take him at his word, we lose out in two ways. Firstly, we fail to please God. Because it's as we believe God that he credits us with righteousness. And secondly, we rob ourselves of the great joy that comes from seeing God make good on his promises. Like like Abraham and Sarah, who in the end saw their, their trust in God transform into laughter and joy. It's not that the path of trust and obedience won't be be without its pain or its suffering. It's just that you can be absolutely sure that when you trust God, 
in the end, it will be more than worth it. And so, friend, let me ask you, where are you failing to trust God? Where are you failing to believe him? Where are you, where are you failing to take God at his word? What part of your life has been given over to practical atheism as though God were dead? Well, friend, whatever it is, can I encourage you today to be like Abraham and to take God at his word? And for you, I'll finish with this story about Martin Luther, the, the, the great Christian reformer of the 1500s. Because there was a time in Luther's Christian life when he was so very, very depressed, depressed for days on end, and couldn't find any joy in the words of God. And the story goes that one day his wife Kate came into his study dressed entirely in black, from head to toe, dressed in black as though she were mourning. And Luther asked her what it was that she was mourning. Have you not heard, Kate asked? God is dead. Luther responded, Woman, that is absurd. God is not dead. Well, she replied, If God is not dead, then stop living as though he is. Friends, our God is so thoroughly, thoroughly trustworthy and he's very much alive. So let's go now and live lives that demonstrate that wonderful truth. Let's pray. Our Father, we want to thank you that you really are so thoroughly trustworthy Father, please forgive us when we fail to take you at your word. Please help us to be like Abraham, who heard what you said and who then lived accordingly. Father, please help us to trust you even when it's really hard, knowing that this is what makes you happy and knowing that in the end it is the path to joy. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen.